You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I should know. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Strength for the powerless, courage for the fearful, hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. With Jason and again, no Amanda guys. I know I like before I promise she's not tied up in the basement somewhere. I'm not foolish enough to do that. She takes care of way too many stinky diapers and pukey babies for me to do that. That's what she's doing right now. As a matter of fact, um, she's taking care of some stuff we got going on in the other room while I am sitting here talking with uh, Miss uh, Karen Robinson. Um, she is a uh, she is. Let me get this right. A trauma recovery expert. She has lots and lots of letters after her, after her name, and we want to talk to her because our house is full of trauma. I mean, from stuff that, that I mean, don't get me wrong here. I, I grew up in a good house. I had good parents, but we all have some trauma in our history. My wife did not grow up in a good place, and she has tons of trauma in her history. Our kids, you know, most of them, by virtue of the fact that they came through the foster system and were adopted, they've got lots of trauma in their history. So Karen, what brought you into this world of trauma and recovery and figuring out how to deal with all this stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. But first, thanks for having me as a guest on your show today. I'm happy to be here. So I became involved in trauma recovery because I'm personally a survivor. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home where there was domestic violence, childhood abuse, um, poverty. And so as a young girl, I attempted suicide. And when then that did not work, a few years later, I ran away from home. And while I lived in Canada at the time, and they were trying to find me a home to go into, nothing worked out. Um, It's a very small town where I'm from. So at first a teacher said she would take me in and that fell through. Then I was supposed to stay with the nuns and thankfully that fell through too. (laughs) I'm sorry to say Uh, my aunt and uncle um, decided to become my legal guardians at that point. They lived in in Maine, United States. So I I moved in with them and um, was a guardian. They were my guardians and took care of me. I ended up getting a full scholarship to the University of Maine. I did my bachelor's and master's there in social work. One of the reasons I chose to become a social worker is when I ran away from home, I was paired with a social worker who was unkind and unprofessional. Um, I would like to even say maybe incompetent. Um, They accused me of doing drugs. They accused me of being a terrible child to my parents, accused me of being promiscuous, like all kinds of things that were not true. They, They did not believe that I was a victim in that situation. 
Mm-hmm. That's hard. How old were you when you ran away? Um, it was right before my freshman year. So I think around 14, 13, 14 range. That's a tough age anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've had lots of kids and, and I'm just going to say freshman in high school, like for, for every, for, for boys is difficult for girls. It seems to be as if not a little bit more difficult, depending on, on where they're at in their development. You know, I've, I've got a daughter who, who I'm pretty proud of the person she's become, but she's a sophomore in high school right now. I've seen her go through some stuff. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy age. Yeah. And to do it from, not only did I move in with a different family, which was a lot more stable, but it was still a new school. It was a new country, even not even a new, you know, like I didn't know basic U.S. geography or history because I know Canadian history better because of the of, of my schooling. Mm-hmm. So lots of things were different for me. Well, I'm just going to say you're probably like pretty much every every high school freshman who don't even know U.S. geography or history because, yeah, we're, we, we most of us weren't that smart when we went to school and um, we, we weren't trying to get smart. I think I would say that that's the nicest way I can put it. And I'm talking about myself there, let alone all the other all the other kids in school. But yeah, now we've we've had some as foster parents we've seen some kids come through um, what they call the ICPC program which stands for something or interstate compact something something mm-hmm. which is where like one particular little girl who who stayed with us now if, if she was going to be with her um, her grandparents and so that would normally look like oh, a phone call from the social worker to say hey we're going to take her to her grandparents which is where she's going to stay for a while um, can you pack her stuff up and have it ready to go by four o'clock this afternoon, which is not difficult. We can do that. And instead, since they lived just probably less than 15 miles across the state line took six months, right? Because of the, all the paperwork that, that has to go up the chain and down the chain and on both sides. And it all has to be paper delivered because for some reason we can't use, um, digital stuff. That'd be too simple and easy. And, that's that's a ton of stuff to do what what's that process look like for you coming out of canada and going into the u.s that's that's not just the state border there well i guess maybe luckily my mom is american and i was actually born in the states as well so that was a little easier i wasn't a canadian citizen Um, i had dual citizenship so that piece was okay i think the main legal thing that happened was a, a visit to the attorney where my aunt and uncle could make decisions for schooling and medical care, things like that. So maybe not as hard as it would be like from like adopting from Russia or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm, you said that. And that, that was my first thought is like, my yeah. gosh, that sounds like terrifyingly difficult, you know, just on the legal side of things, because well, when we get into bureaucracies, you know, I'm not here to, to talk politics, but when you get into the bureaucracy of any state or country, they yeah. seem to really want to justify their existence by more rules and paperwork than what's necessary. Now, I will say my inter- my do- my adoption of my daughter, she's American that was born abroad. And before the p- paperwork was done, because there was lots of problems with that, she was actually stateless. She wasn't a U.S. citizen or a Japanese citizen when she was born in this little town in Japan. Her birth mother um, initially didn't 
turn in paperwork. So the state department told me she was stateless and her mother, um, her birth mother could have had some pretty serious consequences with her chain of command. She was in the military at the time. So that was really, really complicated. So I, I get it. I had to do the adoption on the international side of the house. I had to have a, a Japanese attorney and then I had to do it on the American side of the house. So I had to have the American legal system involved. So that was all very fun. Oh, I, bet, I bet. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you came up through the system and, and uh, are also a parent in the system. I have to ask this question was, was the mom an American um, service member or a Japanese service member? No, American. Yeah. American. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so she was raised in a, um, in more of an American, um, an American customs and, and world. Okay. Yeah. Cause, cause when you get to that international side, things get really, really confusing and tricky sometimes. And especially on, you know, understanding their culture that they come out of and, and all that. So, so that wasn't a part of your story. Well, no, it still was because we had the, the first home study was done by Japanese government. And so the first home study question or the one that the only one I remember was um, does, and my child was, I think 10 months at the time the Japanese social worker asked me, um, does she wear shoes in the house? You know, and, you know, in, in Japan, people take shoes off. <laughs> and so I wasn't sure if it was, I, I, I didn't understand the intent of the question. I'm like, well, we, we do take our shoes off, but she does wear, I do put her in shoes when we go out. <laughs> Cause I did, wasn't sure what they were asking. It's just not, you know, as a, an American social worker, I've done plenty of home studies I, I never asked a parent, does your child wear shoes in the house? So, yeah, I just can, an example of difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes, as, as a social worker with experience, the experience of having been a kid who was in the system and a current adoptive mother, mm-hmm. my gosh, like you, you've, I thought we'd seen almost all the different sides of this thing, but, but you've got a little bit more, a little bit more um, intuition into how the system works you know, and everybody talks about how the system's so broken. And as somebody who's seen, I think all aspects, maybe you're not Manny. a judge, are you? I'm not a judge yet. Okay. So, so you, you haven't seen all the sides yet, but you're pretty much, you're getting there. You're on your way. So if, if, if you could wave that magic wand and change the system, what do you, what do you think we could do to, to help, to help change the system so we could benefit all the people involved? Oh, that's, that's a loaded question, but I do think less bureaucracy, more um, systemized systems, like especially across state lines, you know, having, instead of having state guidelines on some of this, having national standards maybe would be easier. Um, I've had adoptive parents adopt a child, you know, from Georgia and have to fly multiple times to Georgia. They're in Virginia. You know, it's like, why can't we make that a little easier for the kids and, and families? So I think laws and paperwork lit junk, I'll say, that all could be much easier than what it is. A lot of the stuff that's broken, I'm not sure what is the answer, frankly. Um, I know when I was a young social worker, a lot of my education, there was a big push for family preservation at the time. And being a child in a dysfunctional home, I had a lot of heartburn around that. You know, my 
my natural tendency is to be child focused, you know, and doing what's best for the child. Of course, if a family wants to do better and puts the work in to be better, of course, I support that as well. But to the point of view, and it changes off and on over the years of family preservation. I don't think that's in the best interest of the child Um, when it is sure, but a lot of times it's not. And so I think always being child centered instead of family centered to me feels better just from my own personal experience and actually my professional experience too. And I can't disagree with you on that because we we've seen too many situations where a kid has stayed with us for a year before the parent, you know, bio parent makes that first contact. And, and if that's the case, man, I'm not so certain I want to focus on, on what's in the best interest of the bio mom and dad, if they're, they're not interested in in doing the work to become a, a, a parent. You can't be a once a year parent and make it work. Yeah, that that you don't get to. Eat. They actually have to eat more often than that. They tell me. Yeah. You know, you you have to you have to put that put that that time and energy in. You know, and, and right now, I guess I'm a little bit more food centric because we do have a little girl staying with us right now, and she's she just came out of the NICU and she doesn't do a great job with eating. Um, not her fault. We don't really know why she actually has a, a battery of tests coming up to uh to try and figure that out. But every four hours. 24 hours a day, my wife or I won, mostly my wife, because she's awesome like that is, um, right now I, I know where she's at. You know, she, she just tried to eat a little bit of a bottle and, you know, she'll eat what she can. And after she finishes what she can, um, she has a, a tube that where it will be, she'll be fed mechanically through a G tube to keep her alive. And, and that's mm-hmm. all we can do. And if you're not, if you're not focused on the best interest of the child, I'm going to tell you, that feeding schedule is a pain in the butt about 3 a.m. It's not any, any nicer at 11 p.m. or at 7 a.m., depending on your schedule. Like, it's a lot of work. And right. sometimes not every parent is willing to, to put in that kind of work to make certain that their kid, you know, I mean, in this case, this is a matter of literally of her survival. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. it's 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 always such a challenge so one of the things i always do like to ask though is is what's your your relationship with your biological family like today do you have a relationship with them or no i do it's it's strained at best Um, my mom has some serious health issues so my way of doing things and i actually teach this to a lot of my clients is if she were to pass, I want to have no regrets on my end, you know, whether she has regrets or not, that's between her and, you know, God, I guess. But um, for me, I, I don't want to have regrets because my mom is someone who has tried to parent me on and off over the years. And she had a lot of mental health and physical health issues that did interfere. Plus she's a huge trauma survivor like every possible trauma has been a part of her life. So I have more, I have a little more compassion for her. Um, Cause I, I've seen her try my father. We don't have a relationship at all. There's no hate there, but there's been like s- s- no effort on his part to amend or approve the, the relationship. So I've decided that I'm really okay 
with not trying as well at this point in my life. So, I mean, I, I, I would never do anything mean to him. Um, but I also don't lie or protect him either. So if someone asks me a question about him and being raised by him, I'm, I'm honest about it. Um, I do have one brother in our relationship. Um, I love him. He loves me. We don't see our childhood on the same way. He was younger. Um, but I think we have a, a mutual respect for each other. And we, we, we do try to have some sort of connection. It's, it could use some improvement for sure. It's interesting. I say this a lot to people, but, but parts of that story mirror my wife's, you know, she had, she had three siblings and um, each and every one of them was, was a different experience in in their eyes. And um, I mean, I, I don't know any of them that would say they grew up in a healthy, happy place, but but they had such a different experience that they they have different levels of connection with with their own family because you know they were raised in a different way or you know with with a different you know parental mix you know I think I think let me I think all all of her siblings all have different fathers and so the father figure as that changed you know that that impacted what their childhood looked like right right and so that that's that's been one of the things that she had to struggle through. Um, now I know you have a, uh, you have your own podcast called the health thrive dream podcast, right? Close. Um, heal thrive dream. Oh, that's right. heal. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading that's my okay. own writing and I can't read it. <laughs> but you know, heal comes from health. So I, I don't ever mind when people, you know, make that mistake because it's easy to do when it's, they're close together. Yeah. So, so what brought that about? Oh, that's a great question too. I like that question. Um, it started when, okay, so I've done a lot of recovery over the years and I'm actually, I thought I met all my dreams, all of my goals. You know, I, I, after lots of kissing frogs, I have an amazing husband. Um, I have beautiful children you know, I have a nice home. I have my education. I have a career. I thought all my dreams were, I met them. But one day I saw this advertisement for this program called Dream Building. And it's by a coach named Mary Morrissey. She's a transformation coach. And I, I it just something about that just kind of, um, it caught my attention. I don't know how else better, to, like something said to me, you need to, well, God, God said, you need to go to that. I'm like, okay, well, what does that hurt? You know, I was very curious. And when I went to that, I learned that I could have even bigger dreams. And so then I thought of, started to think about what more of an impact I could have um, in this world that would be bigger than one-to-one counseling, you know, cause I I've made an impact on lots of people's lives by doing one-to-one, but what could I do with group programs or um, workshops that anybody in the world could attend? So that's how my podcast and, and my coaching business was born, was through dream building, just learning to expand the mind, like, okay, what else could I do? That's that's awesome because I think, and, and I, I say this to, to guys in, in the groups that I lead a lot of times, and that is that, like, if you haven't had pain and trauma in your life yet, just hang on. It's coming. That That's coming. And yeah. it's, you're going to have some hard places in your life. But as you walk through it, I want you to find 
the beauty that you can create out of it. Otherwise, it's wasted pain. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. Transform it. Do something with it. Yeah. Pain, pain is inevitable. You know, suffering is a choice. You're going to to live, choose to live inside of that suffering and be a victim for, for however long you choose to live in that, or, or, or you're going to change the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was actually just preaching this to, to my guys this morning on, on one of our, our mastermind meetings that, you know, that's, that is your choice. You're going to change the world one way or another. We're all changing the world a hundred years from now, you know, in, in 2122, the world will be different because I lived. I get to choose what that difference is. Yeah. If I had set in some of my own problems and my own trauma, if I had never chose to overcome the struggle I had with alcohol, the world would be different. I promise you, because the, the effects that I, that I have on the 30 something kids who've come through our house or the, you know, all the kids who stayed here permanently, those effects will, will change my kid's life. And I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Carolyn leaf, but she has a book called something like switching on your brain, something like that. And I was, mm-hmm. had somebody recommend it to me recently. And I was, I was listening, I'd say reading, but literally I, I listen to almost all of my books because I drive for a living and I can listen way better there than I can actually read the book while I'm driving. That's gets a little dangerous, but she, she was talking about, um, she, she ties a lot of, a lot of the things that we're learning in, in, um, particle physics in, in psychology and all the things in the world to a religious viewpoint. And she, you know, there's a, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that where, where it talks about the, the sins of the father being visited on the third and fourth generation. And we've, we can see now that, that the DNA has changed in kids of trauma and that, that, that change in DNA can last up to three or four generations. Epigenics. Yep. And it's, it's insane to, when we really think about how we can change the future today. And it's just around our choices. So I love the fact that you, you looked at that as an opportunity to help others, as opposed to just the, uh, the, the mentality that so many people choose that they're a victim of something horrible. And oftentimes they are, I mean, don't get me wrong. They are a victim mm-hmm. of something horrible, but how do you choose to, to live your life now for the next generation, for your own kids. And I hope everybody listening hears this and realizes that, yes, I am trying to get you all to be better humans so that my kids live in a better world. And I'm going to try and make my kids better humans so yours live in a better world. Right. I I don't know that this side of eternity, we're ever going to find anything close to perfection, but we can always strive into that. So I love what you're doing with, um, with your, 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 uh, counseling and with your podcast and with, with these sorts of groups, I know that, um, let's see anybody who wants to find Karen, you can find her at Karen Robinson, 360.com. Right. Right. I got that. That's one the right. easiest you did. And that's the easiest way. All my way to book with me for a free consult or to learn more about me at my website and my social media, everything's there. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I try to always make sure I throw that in the front end of the conversation so that if somebody finds what you're saying helpful, they, they can go find you because man, I don't care who you are. You need help. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> we all do. I mean, what is today? Let's see. Look at the, at the, the date. I'm pretty certain that, that my next, you know, the next appointment that Amanda and I have for our therapist is a week from today because we need help. We need mm-hmm. we struggle through stuff, you know, 
trauma is real. Trauma is real. So uh, as a trauma recovery expert, mm-hmm. like, how would you talk? Tell me a little bit about that, what that looks like in the life, because like I mentioned earlier, we all have have some level of trauma in our house. Some of them, some of us are on, you know, five out of 10 on the scale and some of us are 50 out of 10 on that scale. So we all need some some uh, some work in in our lives. And I think most of the listeners probably have something really similar in their life. So so what not only brought you to that, but how do you help people walk through some trauma that they may have have hidden and just chose to live with that in the back of their mind? Yeah. So this is a very meaty question, meaning there's lots to say. So first of all, I have a master's degree in social work and my very first job in the, in the 90s was working um, in outpatient mental health where almost everybody had severe trauma um, as in our city, DC. And so I was part of a program that was nine months of training in trauma recovery. And then recently I signed up for another nine month program and that the training has looked very different. So not only has the training been very different for 24 years of my career, I've been studying trauma. What I've learned, and some of this is obvious and some of it is not depends on where people are in their journey is that trauma impacts every single area of our lives. It impacts our parenting. It impacts our marriages, our relationships. It impacts how we communicate. It impacts our decision-making, our coping skills or maladaptive coping skills like drinking, overeating, so forth. Um, Everything you can think of, our our sex lives, um, our careers, how we handle toxic work environments. Um, There is nothing that trauma doesn't touch if if you've been a a victim of trauma or a survivor of trauma is what I like to say. So knowing that, I believe treatment has to be holistic and all-encompassing. Like I can't, if you're a trauma survivor and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go just help you with your marriage. Well, you have a lot of baggage that you're bringing into the marriage. So there's, it's more complicated than just doing some marital therapy. Um, How I do treatment is I have a roadmap for my clients and I have started the roadmap at different places over my career. You know, the, the more I learn, the better I, I have become at my my calling of being a, a therapist. Um, so what I like to do is work on healing their thought process. So looking at any kind of maladaptive, unhealthy thinking they have and work on replacing unhealthy thoughts with healthier, believable thoughts. I work on emotional regulation. So instead of having severe ups and downs. I work on um, forgiveness of self. You know, that is where a lot of people struggle because even though we cognitively know that we didn't abuse ourselves, other people abused us, there's still a lot of shame and guilt that happens to survivors. And that's just part of the cycle, right? That's why abuse often continues is because we get stuck in those cycles 
of believing, well, there must be something wrong with me or this wouldn't have happened. So I work on healing that piece. A lot of times that can be called moral injury or this impacted your spiritual beliefs, whether you've been a victim or not. And so healing that piece as well. And after we do that, um, then I help people work on their relationships. Like it depends on where they are. Is it, is it the marriage? Is it the parenting? Are they trying to repair something with um, extended family members, friendships, bosses, yada, yada. So we work on, after we do a lot of self-work, then we do the relationship work. And then after that, it's usually some sort of career purpose type of work and giving back you know, community service work, because a lot of healing happens when you also help others. It it can be very healing. So that's kind of the path I use. Yeah. um, I I love, especially that last piece, you know, figuring out how to, how to intentionally help others. I think that's part of where I'm at in my journey, just because, you know, with the group that we, um, that, that I'm a part of, and I lead some of the facilitate some of the calls in there, um, and what we do here, part of this is just reaching out to, to where other people are at in their own struggles. Um, I do have, uh, one other question there that, that I want to touch on. I have a friend of mine who, who's in this group and I know that, that his, um, his struggle is a hundred percent, at least as part of his struggle, because most of our problems are, are our own doing. If you, if we dig deep enough, we'll find our own, our own fingerprints on some of the biggest weapons that, that, that hurt us, but he's, um, he's dealing with a situation where his, his, uh, daughter is, is, um, terminally ill. Um, the doctors gave him a, a diagnosis and I'm not even going to try and pronounce, um, but basically told him and his wife that, that they should be prepared to bury their daughter by her fifth birthday. And not only is, I mean, is that experience trauma, but just walking through that every day that they're, you know, they're taking care of this little girl who's, who's not going to be able to physically develop. And that's a struggle. And so when I talk to guys like that, how do you help guys and not even just um, people, obviously that's a more of an extreme example, but we all know that we have some trauma somewhere coming up in life. You've got something coming up in your family, in your life that there will be problems in your life. So how do you prepare yourself for those sorts of things that are going to come that are going to knock you flat on your face? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, a challenging question for sure. So I think there's a simple answer and then there may be a more complex answer too. So in terms of how to help someone that's facing that kind of trauma, I think that the answer is just simply being there. There's nothing that you're going to say or do to make that go away or be better. Now, in terms of how to cope when you know, traumas are going to happen. Um, a lot of times my clients will, will say, especially when things are going well for a moment, that they're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm like, oh, you don't need to wait. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, that shoe always drops. You will always have a crisis. There will always be something bad that will happen. That's the cycle of life. So why wait for something that you know is going to happen? Since you know that you're going to have trauma, you're going to have loss, you're going to have heartbreak, focus on the joy, focus on, on the, the beautiful moments that you have with this child. You know, does she smile at you? Do you smile at her? You know, what meaningful thing can you do now to just simply enjoy the moment? And I, I, 
I want to say I get that that's hard. I obviously have not, cannot relate a hundred percent because I don't have a child in that situation. So I can't say, oh, you should be joyful. Choose joy. That's very obnoxious and not reality. But what I, I mean to say is, and I hope I would be able to do this, is look for what beautiful moments and memories can I have after they pass? I hope I answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, because yeah. And, and this guy and I have become pretty close over the the last year or two that we've known each other just because you know we've been through something similar. You know, we, we've, we've buried a, a little girl who called us mom and dad. Um, we, we've been through that and, and I'm going to be honest, some of the only things that got me through that, those harder moments, I think we're being able to look back and realize the moments where, yes, she had a very hard life and in her own biological family, she had lots of struggles, but yeah. I have some memories there of seeing true joy in her eyes. And I think that's, that's part of what's pulled me through that. Okay. I'm, I'm glad that I said something that's true then. Cause I have not been <laughs> through that experience. I, I just hope I could be in that place. Yeah, you know, I don't I'm, ever want to be in that place, and I don't wish that on anybody. And and nobody does, but you know, God has a sense of humor that that we don't understand sometimes. And we look back and go, for all the people who say I could never have gone, I could not have been through what you've been through. And well, you don't get a choice. Actually, you don't God did not ask permission before he he gave us that that struggle to to handle. You know, he right. you know we just had the struggle to handle, and. Honestly, it's it's interesting that um, you know, the way that my wife and I have dealt with it. You know, we we grew up in in totally different ways, and and for me, it's it's brought me a, like much deeper into my own spirituality, mm-hmm. and that's that's really not the case for for Amanda, but that's just how you know how we've we've been able to to walk through this because without that, I don't know that this podcast would exist or I would even exist. I was in a pretty dark place. You know, my first knee-jerk reaction was to go do the healthy thing like most guys do and white-knuckle it and do it all by myself and not be around anybody, not pay attention to anybody, not reach out for help to anybody except for to my good friend uh, Jack and Jim and, and some other more expensive whiskeys that that were really unhealthy for me. <laughs> it took me a minute for that to click, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I created a little bit of an addiction in my own life. Mm-hmm. And I love, I still find myself, you know, using words like a little bit of an addiction. Yeah. It wasn't a little bit, it was a lot bit. And that was a struggle I had to walk out of. And it's, it's been really, a, it was a hard time for sure. As anybody might imagine, it was a ridiculously difficult time for us to walk through, but by finding the people who can help us walk through it by finding the, the therapist that the, the guy that I'm seeing here in a week, he's the guy. It took us a long time to, to find that and connect with the right person. And he's the guy who's, who's walked us through lots of hard moments. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned waiting for the other shoe to drop and oh my goodness, if that hasn't been the story of our, <laughs> of our last couple of two, three, four years, it's been hard. Yeah. Well, the more kiddos you add to the mix, lots and lots of shoes are going to drop. You know, yeah, we, the more people we invite in our lives. Yeah. We, we have a shoe store at this point. I'm just going to say, <laughs> but, but you know, with the things we've been through have, have, um, have really prepared us in ways we didn't expect to deal with other things. And it's, it's got, it's, it still has its hard moments. 
if I'm going to be a hundred percent honest, we still have our yes. hard moments, but, but we find that somehow or another, we we have the strength to walk through it together. And thank God we had each other because these people who go through this as single parents, I, God bless you. I, I don't know how you make it through. If it weren't for the strength of my wife in those moments, you know, and, and that's something that, you know, maybe you can speak to that a little bit, but just having that, that community of people around you as a support team and the value in that. Yeah. I have lots to say about that too. I did adopt my daughter when I was single. <laughs> I got in divorce. I had a, a, a little girl who was like, uh, in oh, what grade was she in? Maybe first grade. Um, yeah, I, I, I divorced one week and shortly after I had a baby in my arms. It was like, what am I doing? Wow. Um, yeah. So a couple of things is if you're with the wrong person, if you're with someone who's really unhealthy and won't do things to get better, it is easier to be alone than to have an unhealthy partner. But now I have my husband and we had a, another child together. So we have three now. Um, and when you have the right life partner, that support is invaluable. And I'll even give an example. I had postpartum depression with my first child and I fully expected it after giving birth to my son, especially since he was in the NICU. Like it was a very difficult, um, towards the end pregnancy delivery. Um, both of us nearly died, but because I had a supportive life partner and I didn't anticipate this, I just assumed I would have postpartum. Um, I didn't. I was like, oh my gosh, I think that supportive partner might matter more than we even realize and having support people in our lives. So um, what happened when my son was in the NICU, my oldest daughter was also in the hospital, a different hospital and was really ill. And so I had two children in the hospital and I've had an emergency C-section, right? And they can't drive. We had friends and we, neither my husband and I have family in our area, but our friends really just carried us and were our community. Like we have friends dropping off meals. We had friends um, driving me between both hospitals. You know, I would um, feed the baby at one, go see the other child, go back and pump. And I was doing this two to three times a day. And I couldn't have done that without friends you know, their support. So community, there is no price for community. I think survivors, sometimes we have a hard time leaning into that. It's hard to trust that people will be there for us. But when you have the right community in your life and you work on building that, it works beautifully. Yeah, that's something that we, we, we're in a similar situation. We don't have any uh, family in the close area that could help out. And that's something that I think we failed greatly. You know, when, when we moved to where we're at now, um, we, we moved from in, in town in, in a city, I guess I would say out to the country and by country, I mean like uh, out in, out in the country. And um, we moved back into town, quote unquote town. We live in a small town now and we've, mm -hmm. we've not really connected with a whole lot of people because we're always so busy with kids and, and it's difficult, especially when you have kids of trauma sometimes to to build those relationships. Our life is is really centered around a lot of the things that we have to take care of for these kids. And we didn't right. build that community. And that's been a real struggle for us sometimes. 
because if we want to go out tonight for dinner, um, usually, usually the nights, the only nights we can, can really pull that off is Sunday nights because our, our daughter, our 15 year old daughter will be home and she is an incredibly responsible young woman. And so I can put the, put the younger kids to bed. I say, I, by I, I mean, Amanda usually puts them to bed. I'll be honest. <laughs> I don't want to take too much credit here and she'll sit in the house and, and do what teenage girls do, you know, Snapchat and all that sort of fun stuff and, and keep an eye and make sure everything is, is okay and safe. And, and we don't, we don't take long drives to, to places far away, but we can get away once in a while. And that's been an important part of our relationship, my wife and I, because without that, I mean, if I didn't have her strength and support, I don't know that I would make it and vice versa. She'll tell you the same thing. We mm-hmm. have had to be, learn to become the rock for the other one. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're saying too, is like, there's really not a lot of time in your day to start building outside relationships and stuff. And sometimes our community can be paid help. And I think that's way okay. Like the therapists you have um, and, you know, the support people in the kids' lives, that's okay. Like that doesn't mean you're being truly alone and trying to do everything on your own. So, you know, support groups, therapy, coaching, you know, other parents that may be struggling even, um, the community can be lots of different makeup and mixes. It could be dropping on, um, getting on a zoom call with an old friend just for five minutes, just say, I need a vent for five minutes. And then I've got to go change diapers, you know, just some, just something, some sort of release. And also having some hobbies in your copious free time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I used to have that free time thing and, and I had hobbies, you know, um, I don't mention it very often, but you know, I, I did, I did some blacksmithing stuff just as a hobby. You know, it was like, Hey, let's go learn how to do this. It was interesting to me. So I played with it. I ended up on a TV show for it for a couple times. <laughs> now. It, it's been a great hobby. And, and to be honest, the last time I was on the show was there. Oh, it's been about a year and a half. We're almost to the two year mark since I was on there last time. And I think I managed to fire up the forge and actually go, go work on some of that stuff twice in the last year. And mm-hmm. it's so easy to let that stuff go, but it, I'm glad you, you pointed that out because man, we have to find a way to fill our own cup so that we can be there to fill the cups of others around us. Yeah. I think it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be something you do every day. It's just put it on the calendar, make space for it somehow, somewhere. And and I I get, I I can say that and it's not always easy, but at least plan it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know that I heard somebody tell me once you can't pour into others when your cup is empty. And that's, that's a responsibility of mine to go take care of so that I can, because I got lots of kids with lots of, lots of stuff that I need to be able to pour into their lives. And mm-hmm. if I allow that frustration to build and don't, don't deal with any of that, my own self, and I'm not a very good parent at that point. I'm just a frustrated, angry, you know, losing my own mind fell over here trying to figure out how to deal with the hard stuff. Yeah. And as foster parents, we, we see a lot of hard stuff come through our life. Yes, you do. So self-care is essential. Absolutely. Well, Karen, I appreciate your, your time today. Um, talking about this stuff that we're struggling through as, as what, whether the, the listener, whoever's listening, whether you're a foster parent today or an adoptive parent, or you're somebody who's, who's struggled through being in the system yourself, or you're, you're one of us 
crazy people out there who's who maybe is just thinking about becoming a foster parent who wants to help kids like this. This is a story of what you need to do in order to be successful as a foster parent, as an adoptive parent. We have to work through this stuff. It's it's not just it doesn't come natural. Yeah. Good well, point. Thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate you coming on here and uh, and sharing your story. And we will have um, all the links to all of your stuff, the podcast, your website. And I know you mentioned you had some free stuff on your website there as well. Um, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll have links to all of that in the show notes the show. on here. And um, make sure that people can get a hold of you. I appreciate that. I'm here if anyone wants to reach out. I do um, free consultations and help people figure out what they need next. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Karen's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything is in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, go, go, go. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks. 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 Unparalleled oh, Studios. Studios. <laughs>